Amen. So as we looked at last week, as we continue our series here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he tells them in the latter part of uh, chapter 5 of all of the things that God has done for them. You know, the popular verse, 517, uh, for we're in a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. And so as we journey through the latter part of 5 and into 6, I began to pray and study about, you know, God, what is it that you have in store for us here in chapter 6? You see, all of us want to become something, right? You're becoming something. Uh, I thought back to, you know, especially we, we have a high school junior, so we're having those conversations about careers and everything. And, and so I thought about my journey with that and the things that um, I thought I wanted to be. You know, all of us have these ideas, uh, especially when we're younger, right, of things that we want to be, things we want to become. Uh, I remember when I was younger, I took criminal justice classes uh, when I was in junior college even, and I explored uh, the criminal justice field. And, you know, is that something that uh, God wants me to do? And I remember visiting a couple of colleges and exploring that, and clearly that's not the route that I took. Uh, but it was something that, you know, was a desire within me of, hey, this is something I'm interested in, and, and I'm exploring. Is this what God wants me to become? You see, in the journey of life, there's something for you that God wants you to become, and we're going to look at that today. What am I becoming? Every one of us, in some shape, form, or fashion, intentionally or unintentionally, you and I are becoming something. And so let's ask a couple of questions as we begin this morning. First question is, what you are doing helping you to become who you want to be? Is what you are doing helping you to become who you want to be? You see, if I want to uh, get a degree in a certain field, I have to do things to get that degree. I don't just decide that, and then one day I wake up and I, you know, I'm in that career. I can't be something unless there's preparation for that, right? There has to be movement in that direction. So is what you're doing helping you to achieve that? Well, maybe, maybe you say this morning, look, I'm not trying to become anything. I'm just trying to survive. You know, when you look around in the world today, it seems to be that a lot of people are just trying to survive, right? But as we look at that, again, intentionally or unintentionally, you're becoming something. You see, as I thought about that, I even thought about our personal qualities and our personal traits you know, think about, you know, on the negative side. You don't become selfish or hateful or afraid all at once, right? You don't just wake up one day and decide, you know what, I'm going to be very hateful today. No, no. What happens is it is a gradual progression. You know, think about being bitter. Bitterness isn't a place that we begin. Bitterness is a place that we end. Joy is the same way. You know, so if you look at the positive side, joy is the same way. Joy is a lot of happiness put together, right? And so as we talk about uh, becoming who we are, either positively or negatively, we're all becoming something. You see, we can intentionally choose to be optimistic. We can be eager to be open to change or a new possibility. And so we ask the question, well, is what you're doing helping you to become who you want to be, maybe a more important question that we would ask is, what is what you're doing helping you to become who God wants you to be? Right? We all have plans, and it's hard a man plans his steps, Proverbs 16, 9, but it's the Lord who directs his path. We all have ambitions, things that we want to accomplish. So is what I'm doing helping me to become who I want to be? And is what I am doing helping me to become who God wants me to be? A popular pastor several years ago made this comment, which is the first blank here this morning on your handout. He said this. He says, our greatest need is to become who we already are in Christ. Our greatest need is to become who we already are in Christ. You see, that has a lot of identity implications, doesn't it? You see, when we think about who we already are, oftentimes we don't live that way. Oftentimes it's very difficult to perceive ourselves that way, and oftentimes we're confused as to how we become 
who we already are. Sounds like an oxymoron, right? But how do we become who we already are? And so I think what Paul lays it out very specifically here in the latter part of 5 in the beginning of 6. He says, hey, this is what it means uh, for who you already are. And then in chapter 6, which we're going to unpack, he says, here's how you become who you already are. You see in 517, he says that we're a new creation in Christ, that he who knew no sin, verse 21, became sin, that we, what? That we may become the righteousness of God. You see, the righteousness of God, I'm starting to preach early this morning. The righteousness of God is who you already are in Christ, right? That's who God desires you to become because that's who you already are. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's unpack that. You see, in verse 17, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Pastor Tony preached on this last week. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Paul is speaking here. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But let's be honest. It doesn't feel that way sometimes. Sometimes the old me shows up to the party, right? All the, all the new has come. Sometimes the new doesn't seem available, right? And so he says, hey, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And he goes on and talks about how God reconciled us to himself. Pastor Tony talked about this last week. He says in verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. He says in verse 21, for our sake, he who, uh, he made him sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become, again, the righteousness of God. That is who we already are. How do we become that? And so we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 6. And this is what Paul says. He says, working together with him. So there we have our answer. How do we become who we already are? Well, right out of the gate, Paul says, well, it's easy. You work together with God. And so we're going to unpack what that looks like. He says, work together with Him then. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, in a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So Paul is saying here that as God is reconciling us to himself, how is he doing that? How does the old pass away and the new has come? It happens through God reconciling us to himself. Romans chapter 5 says that we were born with Adam's sin nature. And so because of the sinful nature, which uh, remember what Paul wrote in Romans 6, sin, the penalty for sin, Romans 6, 23, is death. And so because of that separation, Jesus entered human flesh and he reconciled us to God. And so now, according to Romans 5, humanity can be at peace with God. Notice I didn't say humanity is at peace. I said humanity can be at peace with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so God, as he's reconciling us to himself, how is he doing that? He is doing it through our transformation. That we're being transformed into who God wants us to be. And so here's the good news. If you are at the very beginning, as uh, the starting point video says, everything has a genesis or a, a catalyst or a beginning. So if you're at the beginning of your journey, maybe you've been saved a few weeks or a few months, or maybe you've been saved a long time and you're not who God says that you already are, or you're here this morning and you say, I'm not even sure if I'm saved. I have good news for you. I have good news for you. You, this morning, need to know this, that God is not content with leaving you the way that he found you. God is not content with that. The Bible says in Romans, in chapter 8 and verse 29, that those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's desire for you. 
of who you already are, which is the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? It's Jesus. And so God's desire is that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so for us to say that all things have become new and all things have passed away, what that looks like for you and for me is that we would become more Christ-like. That we would become more righteous, that we would live and pursue, we would live in and pursue holiness. Well, how does that happen? You, you know, it's, it's the beginning of a year, it's the second Sunday, and so it's, it's real easy for us to get motivated into these new ideas and new commitments, okay? And so as we think about this, well, how does this happen? Well, in Romans uh, chapter 12 and verse 2, This is what Paul says. How does it happen? He says that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. So we have to begin with saying this, that, hey, if I want to become the righteousness of God, if I want to become who God wants me to be, if I want to become who, according to what Pastor Tony read, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, if I want to become the workmanship of Christ, then what do I have to do? I have to begin by being transformed by the renewal of my mind. That I have to focus on, God, what is it that you want to say to me? God, how is it that you want to work in my life? God, what is it that you want to transform inside of me? Because let's be honest, we're pretty broken. And we desperately need God to do something in our lives. And so this morning, the challenge as we begin is that you would do exactly what Paul says in Romans 12 too, that you would focus your mind on God for the next few minutes and say, God, what is it that you want to transform in my heart and in my life? You see, Paul says, here's who you already are. How do you get there? Well, again, he says in verse 1, working together with him. You see, in the second half of Ephesians, Paul brings the fullness of this truth of working together with God to bear on everyday life. He says that we should put off the old self, characterized by ignorance, selfishness, and to put on the new self, which is characterized by being created in the likeness of God, right? Romans 8, 29. And so as you look at the language in the New Testament, what you discover is that, unfortunately, A lot of what you read, if not all of what you read in the New Testament, it's become very diluted today in our world. You see, when we look at the New Testament, in the New Testament, believe was a verb. When believe came to bear, when people said, here's what I believe, it is because they had taken action on what they said that they believed. Whereas in our world today, belief has simply become a creed. Something that we may say, but not something that we do. In the New Testament, there was surrender to God's authority and teaching. They had masters, right? That good, you know, you, oftentimes when Jesus was referenced in the Bible, they would say master or good teacher. And so they had people that they would be under and that they would follow them, that they would be an apprentice of, and that they would submit to their teachings, Right? We see that with Nicodemus and, and uh, cer- certainly with Jesus and many others. Whereas today, instead of complete surrender to God's authority and God's teaching, there's partial elective surrender to Jesus only when it is convenient. In the New Testament, they lived lives of faith that was integrated in everything that they did. Read the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, The Bible says that they combined everything that they had so that no one was in need. But yet in our world today, we live in this isolation type of world to where we don't have a holistic life to where we are, what we do, and who God made us to be. But we live in this dichotomized, fractional life where there's this church version of me, and there's this work version of me, and there's this social version of me. How do we get off track? I mean, it seems very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 of what God did, right? What he's done, right? It seems very clear of what he did. And it seems very clear in what our role and what our part is in that. But again, somehow we diverted, we diluted, we got off track. 
we slowly began to fade. How did we do that? Well, might, might I suggest to you this morning that one of the main reasons I believe that it's happened is that we have slowly but surely began to believe a conversion-based model of following Jesus instead of a discipleship model of following Jesus. I want you to think with me for a second. Up, you know, seven years ago, we started uh, D groups in our church, and the vast majority of people would have said at that moment, I've never been discipled. Right? I still hear that today. It's people who've never been in, in discipleship groups, I've never been discipled. Why is that? Because we began to follow this conversion based model of Christianity that if I just go to church, If I just walk an aisle, if I just pray a prayer, if I just talk to the preacher, well, then I'm going to be fine. That I check a box, that I get my go-to-heaven free card, right? And and, and it became this huge thing. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, motivation is to be converted. What I'm saying is that is not the end of your walk with God. It is the beginning of your walk with God. But the reason that we shifted away from that And we shifted away from becoming because becoming is not easy. Stripping away the old is not easy. It's humiliating sometimes to confess the reality that, in fact, guess what? You are broken. I am broken. We make mistakes. I'm not who God wants me to be, but I'm trying to be who he's making me to be, right? And so this conversion-based model began to infiltrate the church, and it became a numbers game in the church system. It's sad but true. This approach has led many people to believe that it is the finish line. Salvation is the ending instead of the beginning. You see, in verse 18 of chapter 5, if you'll thumb back there, you'll see in verse 18, at the very beginning, what does he say? He says, all this is, is what? Is from God. It is God who did this. God is the one who saves us. God is the one who transforms us. And so while it is true that being born again is truly the work of God alone, our growth in the kingdom life, the beginning point at salvation, depends significantly upon our own active participation with Jesus through His grace. You are not transformed by osmosis. Church attendance is not going to singularly transform you. You see, Dallas Willard said this. You've heard this before. He said, God is not opposed to effort, but to earning. God is not opposed to effort, but He's opposed to earning. You cannot earn your salvation. But God is not opposed to you and me actively participating. In verse 1, what does he say? Working together with him. Dallas Willard also says this. He says, while it is true that apart from Christ we can do nothing. Listen here. He says, it is also true that if we do nothing, it will be apart from Christ. That if we do nothing, that it doesn't have anything to do with God. That there is active participation in our faith. We're ambassadors, Paul says in chapter 5. We're partners in ministry for the gospel, working together with God. So, all right, we're on board. Okay, we're partners. We're, we're zeroing in on, on what that looks like, that God's saying, okay, you are becoming who I made you to be. But there's a warning in the latter part of verse 1. He says, working together then. And then he says, so that what? So that the grace of God would not be in vain. Now what in the world does that mean? Is he saying that I can receive the grace of God and then I can lose the grace of God? Is he saying that I can be saved and becoming transformed and then I can lose the ability to be saved? Becoming transformed, is that what he's saying? The word here, vain, means empty-handed. You see, what what Paul is referencing here, and we'll unpack a little, he says this. He says that some people live as though grace is only for their eternal destiny. And that it has nothing to do 
with the here and now. It's almost like life on earth becomes more of a waiting room for God than a journey with God. Would you agree with that? Right? That, that a lot of people treat the grace of God, the reception of His salvation, if you will, as more of a, a, a distant thing. Even I think I referenced this a couple weeks ago when I preached uh, in November uh, that Martha stated this in John 11 when Lazarus had died and Jesus said, it's going to be okay. And she said, oh, I know in the resurrection I'll see him again, right? That everything in our life seems to be relegated to tomorrow. But Paul is saying here, no, it's for right now that the grace of God would not be in vain. And then in verse 2, he begins to talk about what? Now is the day of salvation. You see, God's grace is simply God's action in our lives, helping us to accomplish what we are incapable of accomplishing on our own. That's what grace is. And you desperately need grace every single day. I desperately need grace every single day to help me to do what? To accomplish what I am incapable of accomplishing on my own. And so the next blank on your handout, you see that the grace that saves us it also becomes the grace that teaches us. Remember, we're, we're journeying through, how am I becoming who God wants me to be? The grace that saves us is also the grace that teaches us. You see, grace empowers effort. Grace empowers effort. Look in Titus chapter 2. This is what the Bible says in Titus 2. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. Bringing what? Salvation to all people. This is on the board. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And what is it training us to do? That's the things that we're not going to do. What are we going to do? We're going to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. When? In eternity? No, in the present age. And so what he's saying is that grace not only saves us, but that grace teaches us Today, in the present age, that God has appeared, that grace has come in the form of Jesus so that we would become who God wants us to be. Now, let's be honest. Let's be honest. There's some, sometimes, how can I say this nicely? Sometimes, sometimes people are rotten. That's the nice way to say it, right? Sometimes we are jacked up. Look, l l let's we have to be transformed. If this is who you are, I don't like you that much. If, if I am who I'm always going to be, you probably don't like me that much. But guess what? I know who God wants you to be. I know who you are becoming. I know that there's hope for me because I know that I am becoming more of who God wants me to be. And so there's hope for us. I can tell you this. The one thing that I've probably said more than I've said anything else about discipleship groups, which is sad but true, and is this. You can't want more for them than they want for themselves. I have said that a thousand times when I've had conversations with people that were marginal or on the fringes or not participating or whatever. You cannot want more for them than they want for themselves. You see, I want for you, I want for me what God has in store for us. And it is grace that teaches us what that can be. You see, to receive the grace of God in vain is to believe a watered-down gospel that is no help in times of trouble, that has no life-transforming effects on you, and it leaves you living as though you are on your own. That's what it means to take the grace of God in vain. You see, Paul said earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 17, he says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word. Peddlers. You see, peddling means that we're trading the hope of the gospel for your own version of Christianity. And here's the reality of your own version of Christianity. It crumbles during adversity. It crumbles. It can't withstand the world. It cannot that's why many people's life is a wreck. It's because you're peddling the Word of God instead of learning at the feet of grace. 
You see, conversion is not the end, it's the beginning, with Jesus leading us and guiding us along the way. Not only is Jesus, which is what most people relegate Jesus to, not only is Jesus our Redeemer, not only is Jesus our Savior, but listen, Jesus is our teacher. He is the one that will apprentice us in living life daily in the kingdom. So what what does following Jesus mean? Well, it means that we become an apprentice of Jesus. That we become an apprentice of Jesus. If you're ever in my D group or if you've ever been in my D group, my goal is not that you become more like Matt. I have too many flaws. My goal is that you become more like Jesus. As a D group leader, your goal is that they not have your habits and your discipline, but that they have the habits and discipline that God uh, instilled inside of them to become who he wants them to be. Right? It's not to be who you are, it's to be who Jesus wants them to be. This is how we're capable of becoming the righteousness of God, that we willingly submit to Jesus so that we can learn, so that we can learn. 2 Peter 1.4 says this, he says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. May become. Chapter 5, that we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means that God is not going, as Pastor Tony said last week, force you to do it. You do not have to be transformed. You do not have to be any different today than you were last year. You do not have to do that. You can come and sit in the same place and listen to the same messages for the rest of your life. If that's what you want to do. You will not be forced to be transformed. You will never be forced to go on mission for Jesus. You will never be forced to share your faith with your neighbor. You will never be forced to live to stand up for your faith or to live your faith in the workplace. God will never make you do that. He says that you may become. It is a choice. It is a choice. As Baptists, as Baptists, we champion the free will of man. That we have the free will, that we make the decision. And you're right, you do. You get to make the decision. Do you want to be who God wants you to be? Or do you want to be who you want to be? Because most oftentimes those two things are not the same. And you get to be whatever you want to be. You see, as we, as we think about this becoming, what I think often happens is that we think that once we get saved, I've seen this so many times, we think that once we get saved, that instantly, you know, all things become new. So what we translate that into is that God has made me instantly perfect. I am fully equipped to do anything that I need to do. Which is true, but not true. Right? That you do have all that you need according to life and godliness. That you can be all that you need to be in Christ. That you've got all of Jesus that you're ever going to get. Don't misunderstand me here. But the other side is, guess what? You've got to apply that. You've got to apply it. Think about Moses, okay? Moses is second in command in Egypt. And he sees what? He sees a wrongdoing happening. You can go back and read it. He sees a wrongdoing, right? He sees someone in this disagreement fight. And so what does Moses do? He kills the guy. And he buries him. Right? Remember the story? And so what does Moses do when, when, he, when that happens? Well, Moses realized, you know what? This is not a good idea. I probably shouldn't have done that. He saw this Egyptian beating a Jewish slave. So he killed the Egyptian and he buried him in the sand. When he realized that other people knew what he did, what did Moses do? He fled for his life. And how long was Moses gone? Moses was gone for 40 years watching sheep. 40 years. 40 years. 40 years. Moses was gone for 40 years. Think about that. He was becoming, God had a plan. Did God have a plan for Moses' life? Well, yeah, he hid him in the Nile River so that he could be saved and not killed as a child. And then he was raised in Pharaoh's household. And then he became so prominent that he was number two in command. 
right? That he became, he was becoming who God intended for him to be. And guess what Moses did? Moses turned right and said, am I going to do what I want to do? Am I going to do what God wants me to do? And Moses killed the Egyptian. And what did it cost Moses? Forty years in sheep watching class, right? And so here's what happens with us, that we come to Christ and we say, all right, instantly I should be a teacher, I should be a leader, you know, I should have a position of of leadership or whatever it may be. But is that true? Is that true? You see, God knew who Moses would become, but his decision to fled led him to spend 40 years becoming. Some of you are trapped in the becoming cycle. Because you're becoming who you want to be, and you're not becoming who God wants you to be. You see, righteousness is not instant. Righteousness is not temporary. There is no microwave righteousness. Becoming is a work in progress. It is a work in progress. That God is shaping you and molding you. Listen, the 44-year-old Matt is not the same. Listen, it is not the same as the 25-year-old Matt. It is not the same as the 20-year-old Matt. It is not the same. Physically, that's bad. In every other area, that's really good. Right? It's not the same. And it's not the same for you. It is who you are becoming. And it is through, as we're going to see, through circumstances and life situations that God shapes you and molds you into who he wants you to be. There is no microwave righteousness. How about Paul? Paul, who was very eager to minister, Barnabas brings him into Jerusalem and said, Guys, I realize a lot of the, well, everything that he did was bad, okay, Um, But he's changed. He's saved. And everybody in Jerusalem's like, I don't think so. I heard what happened, you know, with all the Christians that he's been involved in. And and Barnabas says, look, trust me. I'm going to vouch for him. He's good. Okay? And what happens? What happens to Paul? Well, he was sent to the Arabian desert for three years. After that, where did Paul minister? After God sent him, as they call the seminary in the sand, as they sent Paul, as God sent Paul out to, uh, to learn and to grow and to become, did he come back into Jerusalem and pastor the largest church in the area? No. Was Paul well known? Uh, I'm, I don't know. Because look, here's what he did. Paul ministered in very obscure places, Antioch, Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi. These aren't metropolises. God is sending him in places as he is causing him to become who he wants him to be. What is my point? My point is that there is a distinction between time and progress. There is a distinction between time and progress. You see, time does not equate into progress. And progress is not the result of time. Time does not equate into progress. And progress is not the result of time. You can sleep in your garage and you will not become a car. All right? So sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian. Sitting in small group and never participating doesn't make you a participant. Right? We've misunderstood this concept Look, I can go to Walmart every single day. That doesn't make me an employee unless I use self-checkout, right? So, so what am I saying? What I'm saying is that it's not about time. Don't focus on how long have I been here. Don't focus on I've been doing this for 30 years or I've never done this. You know, that was the demise of many a churches. We've never done it this way before. Yeah, check with Blockbuster, see how that worked out. Right? And so what you say is, look, God, what is it? What is the progress? Am I different today? January is a great time to look back and say, am I walking closer with Jesus today than I was 3, 6, 12 months ago? Am I becoming more Christ-like in my character, in my responses, in my thought process? Am I becoming who God says that I already am? Or am I just doing the same old things? 
sitting in the same old places, saying the same old things, hanging with the same people. Is that what I'm doing? You see, it doesn't happen automatically. It requires effort. So what does effort look like in a believer's life? There's a lot of things that we could talk about, but we're going to talk about one thing. You see, becoming, or in other words, putting forth effort begins with discipline. It begins with discipline. Now, there's a lot that can be said about discipline, but I just want to say one thing. Discipline is simply training for something that you will do or you will not do. That's all it is. A lot of people don't like discipline. I love discipline. My, my personality is built around that. Discipline is simply training for something that you will do or something that you won't do. Think about it. It's things that you'll abstain from. You know, I will not, I'm going to discipline myself not to eat donuts. I tried to do that this morning, by the way, and someone brought me a donut, and I ate it. I was trying not to do it, but I did it, okay? But that's the simple thing. Here's what I'm not going to do, okay? But then there's also the discipline of here's what I will do. I will get up every morning and read my Bible before I go to work. That's, that's a I will do discipline. Simple, okay? And so a discipline is an activity within our power that allows us or enables us to accomplish what we cannot do by direct effort. It's an activity within our power. So in other words, my choice, something I can do to accomplish what I can't do just simply by trying. Because look, if that was the deal, you know, we would all have six-pack abs and we'd be crunching donuts all the time, right? But that's not how it works. It requires effort. you got to have discipline because I don't have the power to do that. And so I have to discipline myself in order to accomplish that. It takes time and discipline to become who God wants me to be. What do they say if you do, what is it, if you do something 21 days in a row, it becomes a habit? It takes time to discipline yourself to become who God wants you to be. Or said another way, long obedience in the same direction. You see, for some, becoming more like Jesus happens faster than it happens for others. Sometimes God has to change our circumstances in order to move us towards who He wants us to become. Now, now we're meddling, right? That God would change our circumstances. Well, well, what does Paul say about that? Well, he goes on to list the different circumstances that he encountered. He goes on the list, he talks about distresses to mistreatment to hard work. He says, by great endurance, verse 4, and afflictions and calamities and hardships, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. No one's signing up for that, right? You see, he first lists all the things that he was involved in. To become the righteousness of God, you have to be involved in the things of God. To become the righteousness of God, you have to be involved in the things of God. And here's where people get off track. You see, they hear afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger, and they say, well, that sounds very expensive. Relationally, emotionally, right? It does. And so we have these expectations of who we think God should be and the things that he should do. And that sounds like it's not something that God would want me to do. Maybe someone else, but not me. And so who we are becoming, if it involves afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, and so forth, we say, well, that doesn't meet my expectations of what a 21st century believer would look like, Jesus. And this is where grace comes in. You see, oftentimes we have these unwritten contracts with God where we think if we live a life that we think should please God, that in return God would fix everything in our life. That when I have hardship or calamity, when I have sleepless nights or hunger, that God is doing something wrong. You see, when I don't lean into these moments, when my expectations aren't met, what do we do? We begin to question God. And often, very, very often, people run. You run from God. We run from God. You see, what suffering does is suffering forces us to move 
in a direction. Because we're not just going to stand there and take it. And so we, we run, we move in one direction or the other. No one comes out of suffering unchanged. You're either, you're either changed because of it in a good way or you're jaded because of it in a bad way. It's very common. You see, unfortunately, this is all a part of our becoming because we live in a broken world. And suffering is present and prevalent. According to Romans 5, Paul says, suffering produces hope in our lives, to which someone who is in the midst of suffering would laugh in your face, right? You ever been in the middle of suffering and someone says, well, brother, there's hope. And I say, well, hope's about to punch you in the face, right? Right? Because we don't believe in the midst of that, that there can be any hope in the midst of our suffering. You see, here the Christian suffering will ultimately result, according to Romans 5, in a hope that will not put us to shame. However, no one goes from suffering to hope. That's too wide of a gap to make. So what happens? Well, as we think about this, in Romans chapter 8, he says, In this hope we were saved. But hope is what? It is that is not, he says, hope that is seen is not hope. So what is hope? Well, hope is for for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. So how do we go from suffering to hope, that this becoming process? Well, the way that we do that is if we want to find hope in our suffering, that we cannot be tied to a specific outcome. You see, my hope is not that the situation will turn out a way that I want it to turn out. Or my hope is that not, that not that God would do exactly what I want. But what is my hope as a believer? That God would do what? That he would do what is best for me. It's a hope in Jesus who loves me. It's not this outcome that I feel entitled to. And so what I need to do is in the moment, how do I go from suffering to hope? Is that, well, i got to have to go from suffering to trust. I have to trust that God loves me. I have to trust that the suffering that I'm going through will result in good. Because if I don't do that, in the midst of the pain that doesn't feel good, if I don't trust God, here's what I'll do. I will begin to judge God's faithfulness. I will begin to judge God's love for me based on what I cannot see. It's in these moments that many people, maybe even you, in the midst of your suffering, when you can't see what God is doing, it is at that moment where you cash it all in and you walk away. We're seeing this uh, movement, if you will, of the deconstruction of faith is what they're calling it. To where people who once claimed to be believers are now saying that they are no longer believers and they're walking away from the faith. I mean, we, we see apostasy in Scripture a lot. We see walking away a lot. It's nothing new. It's just being repackaged today. This new word called deconstruction. You see, what happens for me and you, so, you know, that's them, but what about us? Well, what happens for us is that we find ourselves in very difficult situations sometimes. Right? Things that don't make any sense. There's some things that have happened here just recently that Matt doesn't have an answer for. They do not make sense to me. Logic doesn't explain some of the events that have happened in our world here recently. But then I have to remind myself, I'm reminded of what? That we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But that we wrestle against principalities and powers of principalities, Ephesians chapter 6. And that what is happening is what I see. But I don't see everything that's happening. And in the midst of your suffering, you do not see everything that's happening. The Bible says in Romans 8 that he works all things out to the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, that there is an end, and that end is good. But guess what? Here's the hard part. You've got to get to the end. You see, when people turn and walk away, in the midst of the hardest part of the trial, when they're experiencing what they believe is hopelessness, they never get to the good part. I won't see anything to rejoice in, and my suffering will seem pointless if I leave in the middle. You see, I can rejoice in suffering according to the Bible, 
knowing that God is using it to produce in me what I cannot produce in myself. That's discipline. You see, this endurance that we're talking about through faith, it only comes from activity in faith. It only comes from activity in faith. You see, if you compartmentalize your faith, in other words, if there's a Sunday version of you which is separate from the weekly version of you, then guess what? You will never endure in suffering, ever. It will never happen. Well, why is that? Well, you will relegate what happens to you as something that is not related to your faith. Think about it. If something happens at your job, okay, and, you know, you have a disagreement or a problem or whatever happens at your job, what are you going to say? You're going to say, well, you know, I work at Walmart, and here's what happened at Walmart, so I'm going to deal with it in a Walmart way. What is Walmart's policy? That's what you're going to do. Every, every uh, corporation has, you know, standard operating procedures, and so that's what you're going to do. You're going to operate according to the acceptable procedure in that moment. If you, if you compartmentalize your life. But what do believers do? Believers say, I work at Walmart, but I'm just working here. It's a means to an end because God has planted me here to be a part of whatever it is he's doing. I don't really know what that is, but he's doing something. And so I'm going to trust that he's doing it, okay? And then I have this situation that comes up while I'm working at Walmart, and it's bad. What do I do? I don't go to the standard operating procedure manual and say, all right, what, what did they do the last time? I go to my father, and I say, God, what is it that you want me to do in this situation. I go to someone who is more mature than me spiritually and I say, brother, listen, help me out in this. What would you do in this situation? Because in the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom, right? That I'm not operating according to the world standards. But when I relegate my faith to something that is not related to my faith, which newsflash, everything is, but when I relegate it that it doesn't, I will not handle it from a biblical perspective. So if you go through a hard time, or you're mistreated, or you have a difficult time, you will do what? You will dismiss it as unfair and unrelated to your walk with God, and you will approach it through a worldly lens. And guess what happens? It won't work out, right? I mean, you might get lucky, but the vast majority of times it's not going to work out. And number two, the worst part of it is what? You're not going to grow in your faith. Because you didn't exercise your faith. So you're not going to grow. You see, in order to endure through faith, you have to be involved in your faith. Look what Paul says in verse 6. He says, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God. And the we- with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. It is through the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of God that Paul endured. So here's the question. What courses do you think that Paul took in school? What, what courses did Paul take in the school of patience and persecution? You think he took preaching class? You think he took a theology class? You think he learned Greek or Hebrew? You think Paul, when he was in the Arabian desert, was learning church growth strategies? No, here's what, here's what Paul enrolled in. Paul enrolled in pureness, intimacy with God, kindness with others, patience, and genuine love. That's the school Paul was in. You see, that's how Paul was able to make it through, is that it was the Holy Spirit and the power of God working in him to work through him. Look what he says in verse 8. Through honor, dishonor, slander, praise. He says we're treated as impostors and yet uh, are true. We're treated as impostors and yet are true as unknown and yet well known as dying. And behold, we live as punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich. As having nothing yet possessing everything. That sounds like to me that Paul's not using the Walmart standard operating procedure there. Then and only then, what happened to Paul? Well, we're right back to where we started. His identity is shaped by God of who he already is in Christ. So as we look at this this morning, then what is our response? 
It's a new year. We say that we're becoming who God says we already are. How do we respond to that? I think there's one implication that Paul is speaking of when he says, one more implication, when he says not to allow the grace of God to go in vain. Look in verse 2, he says, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So we should not presume this morning that what we comprehend today will be clear to us tomorrow. You see, if God is is sharing, if God is showing you something this morning, if God is convicting you of something this morning, Paul says, hey, in a favorable time, respond. And then what does he follow that up with? He says, now is the favorable time. If you're here this morning and you say, hey, I want to become who God says that I already am, well, according to Paul, he says that now is the time that you respond to that. You see, in God's purposes, we are not all, at all times, equally receptive to the truth. Many, many factors play into that. And so you may come in here next week and say, hey, well, well next week I'm going to start becoming, or next week I'm going to surrender to follow Jesus. Well, guess what? Your heart may not be there next week. And so what you have to say is, well, how do I respond now? Well, our response now is that we would respond when God speaks to us. That we would respond to Jesus who is grace that has been revealed to us. That we would respond to the reality that God did not save us to sit in mediocrity. But God saved us to respond to him with committing to being apprenticed by Jesus as we follow him and honor him in all that we say and that we do. You see, this morning, with today being the day of salvation, what is God calling you to do? Well, He's calling you to partner with Him, to become who He created you to be. He's calling you to partner with Him. If you need a New Year's resolution, let it be 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1, working together with Him. That's your resolution. That's how you become who God says that you already are, that you surrender at the feet of Jesus to learning from him. He is not only a savior, he is a good teacher, and he wants to teach you and me to become who he created us to be. Let's pray. God, this morning, God, as we look at the reality of who you are,